All right, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, join me in turning to the book of Philippians. I've been going through this overview series for a long time now, and uh, with all the breaks that can occur and, and uh, uh, different teachings that can happen along the way, um, we've, we've been at this for quite some time, taking a book of the Bible a Wednesday night and working through an overview of that book. My hope is that it gives you kind of a big picture and, and, a, and a, a, an increased sense of access to the Scripture, that when you turn to books that have previously been sort of obscure to you, or maybe you've not been familiar so much with the content or the context, which can be critical to understanding what's happening there, that you'll be less intimidated, more apt to turn there for encouragement and nourishment of soul. Tonight, Philippians is our focus. Philippians is... Uh, one of those four books we mentioned last Wednesday night as the prison epistles, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. What's interesting about that is that Philippians is probably the most positive, upbeat, optimistic book in the New Testament. Again and again, Paul says, rejoice, and again, I say, rejoice. No matter what's happening in Paul's life, he is, he, he is insistent that we as followers of Jesus can be and should be satisfied in him, ever rejoicing in him regardless of the circumstances of our life. And what makes that such an outstanding message in Philippians is the fact that historically the Apostle Paul is writing from prison. He is in jail writing to the church, encouraging and admonishing them that they should rejoice even as he himself is rejoicing. One begin, and, and, and your outline looks a little bit different tonight, largely because this comes from preaching preparation for the book of Philippians. But what I've given you there is an outline of the book of Philippians and the main idea of each of those sections along the way. In, 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 the, in the process of preparing to preach, this is an initial step for me in preparing to preach through an expositional series in a book, and so it was neatly prepared for you, and you don't reinvent the wheel, especially on a Wednesday when you've had an incredibly hectic week. So this is a little inside baseball, but this is one step in the process of preparing to preach the book of Philippians, which we did some time ago. I want us to begin in chapter 1 and verse number 3. Paul is celebrating here his partnership together with the church at Philippi because of their generosity. They've given to Paul liberally. He's in prison, and they've sent a love offering to the Apostle Paul. Beyond that, they have been partners in the gospel in giving financially to this love offering that Paul has been amassing to meet the needs raised by famine in the Judean churches. So that he's trying to build this fellowship and unity between Jew and Gentile churches, and the Philippians have participated in that offering as well. Even from their poverty, the Philippian church has given generously to Paul and to Paul's ministry. And because of that giving, I want to press at this for a moment because we have Lottie Moon looming. Because of that generosity, their financial partnership, Paul refers to them as partners in the gospel. In other words, they're being joined together with all of the rewards and benefits that the Apostle Paul himself will be the recipient of on the last day for his faithfulness in ministry because of their faithfulness in partnership. When you give to missions ministries like Lottie Moon, when you give sacrificially to the advancement of the kingdom under any banner or title or name, you are 
invisibly partnering yourself with the fruit of gospel advancement, building a storehouse of reward for the last day. When you begin to think about giving in that way, it really makes it an exciting thing that we can now have this invisible partnership with missionaries and ministries that we may never know the name of this side of heaven, but there awaits for us a reward for our partnership in gospel advancement in that way. Look to verse 3. Paul says, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm sure of this that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the establishment of the gospel. For God is my witness, how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you can approve the things that are superior and can be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So he's celebrating here their faithfulness in partnering together with them. We get a little bit of a glimpse into the prayer life of Paul, specifically his prayer life for the church at Philippi, but I think it's right that we can assume that Paul is praying along similar lines for other churches he's planted and for other churches he didn't plant as he prays for the advancement of the kingdom. Celebrating their partnership in the gospel. He's celebrating the fact that in spite of his imprisonment, in spite of the fact that he has often been called to the carpet for his defense of the gospel, they have been faithful in standing with them. There were others who had not. He would say later in his life, Demas has forsaken me for love of the world. Only Luke is with me. Paul finds himself in desperate straits, and all of his friends seem to have abandoned him. But during this season of despair and difficulty, not so much despair, but difficulty, the Philippian church has remained faithful to the apostle Paul. One of the parts of the book of Philippians that we won't spend much, if any, time with tonight is in chapter 2, the latter part, where Paul is thanking them for the ministry of a man named Epaphroditus. Even while Paul was in prison, the church at Philippi selected one of their ablest men, Epaphroditus, and sent him with the responsibility of caring for the love offering to deliver that for Paul. He falls ill during his visit to the Apostle Paul, and even in his sickness nearly to death, he's faithfully ministering to the needs of the apostle, encouraging, holding up his arms and assisting him in the work of gospel advancement. There's a true brotherhood, a friendship, a kinship that exists between the apostle Paul and the church at Philippi. And it really ought to be like that among the brothers, especially between pastors and the brothers and sisters that abide within a local body. Paul speaks of his deep affection for the, for the church there and how he misses them greatly, praying specifically in verses 9 through 11 that their love would keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you can approve the things that are superior and can be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of his righteousness. This is kind of the process, right? God saves us from our sin grants us love and affection for him, grants us love and affection for the body. God does that supernaturally. Now, to some extent, 
that, that, that has to be cultivated over time. But I, I, if, you, if you come from sort of a mean-spirited, bitter, angry background like me, you could take note at the moment of your conversion at how God had turned your heart toward him and how God had even turned your heart toward others as well. God begins supernaturally, that work of changing our affections and generating in us, creating in us a love and affection for himself and for those around us. So we sort of begin the journey with this love in our heart, but that love needs to be informed by knowledge, and what Paul describes here as discernment, so that you can distinguish between those things which are good and those things which are not so good. Even within the church, you see sometimes failed examples or failed efforts at showing love to people by affirming things that ought not be affirmed or by participating in things that ought not be participated in. But as love is coupled together with an understanding of God's plan and an understanding of God's word, we grow in discernment, in knowledge and discernment, and, and, and we have cultivated in us, growing in us, maturing in us, this capacity for determining what is good and what is bad, for discernment between the good and the best, which is really where discernment becomes a critical need for us. Paul's praying that they would grow in their ability to distinguish not only between the bad and the evil, or, or between the good and the evil, but between the good and the best. More than just praying that they would grow in knowledge, he's praying that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That their abiding in Jesus would help them to grow in grace and bear itself out by they themselves bearing the fruit of the Spirit. So I started reading a couple of days ago, the follow-up to Gentle and Lowly. We gave away hundreds of copies of Gentle and Lowly in our congregation. So many of you have responded and been so encouraged by that book. But there's a follow-up now titled Deeper, and it's really just about sanctification and growing in Christ. And I've been so helped and encouraged by that. It, it deals with our misconceptions of what it means to grow in Christ, to grow in grace. And the different ways that we think about this. One, one way to think about growing in grace is the God first and then me model, he says. Where we see God is saving us from our sin, redeeming us in love, but then it's up to us to grow in grace. And, 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 then, and then there's the sort of God and me model where God saves us and God sanctifies, but we see it as critically important that we make great pains, that we labor, that we strain, that we strive. And then he comes to the correct view of that at a certain point in the book that I find to be so helpful, noting that the answer to our sanctification, the answer to growing in Christ is not God then us or not God and us, it's God in us. The abiding presence of God in us. Our ability to delight in the presence of God in our heart. You realize how astounding it is to note that the Spirit of heaven abides in our heart. As that becomes the controlling factor for us, as we learn to delight in his abiding presence in our life, there is a straining, a laboring, a striving, but it's a strenuous rest that acknowledges that this is not our work at all, but the work of God's abiding presence in us. Paul is praying that the presence of Jesus within the members of the church at Philippi would result in the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ abounding within that body. And that's where we've got to fall, right? God in us, 
has a tremendous impact on the way we live our lives. It influences everything we do. When we are mesmerized by the reality that God in heaven would be pleased to abide in us, it has the effect of not only stirring or creating worship within us, it also has a deep impact on the way we conduct our lives. Look now to verse 12. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has actually resulted in the advance of the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is in the cause of Christ. I'm in jail, and it's actually turned out for my good. It's served to benefit the church. Now, if you're struggling to find perspective in life, Philippians is a good book to spend some time with. Because Paul sees everything through the prism of the gospel. He's in jail. And I just got to tell you, I doubt I would be this optimistic if I were in jail. If this message were coming to you via letter from the DeSoto County Jail, it would likely have a different tone. But Paul says, what I want you to understand is that this has actually served to benefit the advancement of the gospel. He describes a couple of ways that it has. In verse 13, he says, it's become known, known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is in the cause of Christ. Everyone now knows why I'm here. And the fact that everyone knows why I'm here means that there's some discussion of the gospel within the community. It also provides an opportunity for me to give an answer for that. Why in the world would you be imprisoned for some Jew in Israel who's alleged to have died and rose again. Paul has opportunity with every discussion arising out of sheer curiosity to tell them of what Jesus has done in our place and for our sin. In verse 14, he goes on to say, most of the brothers in the Lord have gained confidence in my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the message fearlessly. They, they see that I'm in prison for the gospel and it's okay that I'm in prison for the gospel and I'm not fearful. I'm in prison for the gospel and I'm not despairing. I'm in prison for the gospel and I'm not intimidated. There are just some of the promises, some of the privileges of the gospel that can only be well appreciated under great duress when things don't go the way we'd hoped they would. Now, we thank God for the way that he blesses us and provides for us, and heaven knows God has richly blessed all of us there's not a single exception to that in this building or on this campus, and you'll find very few exceptions to that even within our corner of the world. But when the dark days come, even under dark circumstances, there is occasion for gospel advancement to relish, to delight in, to rejoice in the provision of God for us, even in the valley of the shadow of death. When everything goes wrong, haven't you experienced that God is near in a way that's difficult to discern when things are as good as they could conceivably be. When you've lost a great deal, doesn't God draw near? Isn't he near the brokenhearted? Isn't he close in the hospital and the funeral home and the deathbed? Sure he is. You've experienced, if you've been walking with Jesus for any time whatsoever, you have experienced the nearness of God when things have all gone wonky and it's as bad as it, could, as it could possibly be for you. You watch brothers and sisters who lose people that they love with all of their heart, and they rejoice in that moment. You have the opportunity in personal relationships to personalize experiences like Job, where he loses everything that he has, and he said, the Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
the sustaining force of God in our life is readily experienced when things are as bad as they can be. And even in his imprisonment, Paul says, listen, this has actually turned out for the good of the kingdom. People are emboldened to preach even in the, in the face of the threat of imprisonment. People are asking about the gospel, and this too is a good thing. He has a a sort of a unique perspective on gospel ministries. He begins to to speak to a a number of issues in preaching beginning in verse number 15. I realize we're moving sort of slow in the early part of Philippians, but we'll, we'll speed this up in just a moment. He says, to be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and strife, but others out of goodwill. These do so out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, seeking to cause me anxiety in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Just that in every way, whether out of false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Because I know this will lead to my deliverance through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I'll not be ashamed about anything but that now as always, with all boldness, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul says there are good gospel ministries and there are bad gospel ministries, but I choose to just rejoice that there are gospel ministries. Now, there are times when Paul is very clear about his condemnation and opposition to bad gospel ministries, heretical gospel ministries. It's just been a few weeks ago we looked at Galatians. If Philippians is the most positive book in the New Testament, then Galatians is the most negative. Paul refers even in the book of Philippians to that same party of people that troubled the Galatian church as dogs. And he uses some pretty severe language to make reference to how they should be dealt with or what he hopes or praise on them. We may or may not have time to look at some of those passages. And I would would note that there is a certain degree of discretion on the part of English translators of of the Greek text that Paul uses to describe those people. This is a generous translation. Paul uses severe language to make to make reference to those of the circumcision party. But in a general sense, there is a gladness on his part just that the gospel is being preached. I think there's some wisdom that we can learn from the Apostle Paul in dealing with gospel ministries, whether we judge them to be good or bad. I'm not sure how we came to this place in evangelicalism where everyone with a social media account now believes that they have the responsibility of being the Spirit's discerning factor for everyone with regards to every ministry. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that you don't need discernment, that there aren't bad gospel ministries and even heretical ministries that exist that you need to be warned about and cautious against and careful of. We could run the list tonight from the Joel Osteens to the Joyce Myers to the Benny Hens and all of the prosperity gospel and health and wealth preachers to various other expressions of fundamentalism that get way away from the teaching of the gospel of Christ. Those are very real and present dangers. But it's a bad look for us when we are constantly griping or belittling or pointing the finger at the shortcomings of every other ministry. 
there is something to the Spirit the Apostle Paul imbibes here in his ability, even where some are poorly motivated, to just rejoice in the fact that the message of the gospel is being preached. Wisdom and discernment, the presence of the Spirit is required in knowing when there ought to be the kind of castigation that says they're dogs and when there ought to be the kind of peace of heart that says at least the gospel is being preached. But what I want you to know is there is a place for just saying at least the gospel is being preached. A part of his optimism is fueled by the fact that Paul knows that in the end, come what may, this is going to turn out for his deliverance. Either his deliverance and death to heaven that awaits him or his deliverance from imprisonment and chains through the prayers of the church at Philippi. This is precisely the thing explained in verse number 20. He asked only along the way that they would continue to pray and that he would have the firm resolve that now as always with all boldness, Christ would be highly honored in his body, whether by life or by death. This making a, a nice transition into this next section of chapter 1 where Paul speaks not to perspective with regards to gospel ministry, but perspective on life in general. He's touched on this in speaking of his imprisonment and how it serves the advancement of the kingdom, but now he's going to address the reality that this imprisonment and even the potential death he could face at the hands of his imprisoners will ultimately serve his personal benefit. In verse 21, he says, For me, living is Christ and dying is gain. I cannot overstate the sense of invincibility in Christ that can overwhelm you when you allow that idea, that principle, that perspective to settle down into your heart. I, I've, I've shared this before from the pulpit, I know, but there, I can distinctly remember a time for me as a teenage boy in the height of my lostness involved in all manner of ungodly things, a violent and cruel and mean-spirited young man, realizing that I, I would probably die and go to hell and I didn't care. And the, the sense of wicked freedom that over... I could take you to the place. I can tell you, I was sitting in a red Nissan truck about two-thirds of the way down the main entrance to the Grove Apartments on Lynn Lane in Starkville, Mississippi, on a summer day. Now, that's a hellish idea. But there is a sense of invincibility that comes over you when you come to terms with the fact that you're not concerned about the consequences or the outcomes. Now, in, in, in a heavenly turn to a hellish notion, in Christ... We don't have to concern ourselves with earthly or eternal outcomes because those have been settled in Jesus. And in the same way I was overcome on that summer day by that hellish sense of invincibility, there is now for us when we settle our hearts here on gospel ground, this heavenly reality that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And at the end of the day, it does not matter what the outcomes look like. Heads I win, tails I win. There is no outcome in which I lose. There is only gain for us in Christ. Paul has mastered this in ministry and seeks to give expression to this sense of invincibility to the church at Philippi.
In verse 22, he says, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I'm pressured by both. I have the desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. He's, he's thinking out loud about his being perplexed, hard-pressed between these two decisions. To stay would be beneficial for you, but oh, how good it would be to just be with Jesus. In verse 25, he finally comes out loud to the conclusion, since I'm persuaded of this, the benefit of my continuing on for you, I know that I'll remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of me your confidence may grow in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. It's almost as though Paul knows they're not going to kill me this round, but if they did, it'd be all right. And he hopes that they'll grow from that kind of perspective and outlook on life as well. In verse 27, he gets to the practical outcomes of that kind of perspective. He says just one thing, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear about you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, working side by side for the faith that comes through the gospel be together. Now in chapter 2, Paul's transitioned to this idea of unity in the church. He's almost exclusively positive with the church at Philippi, but they've got one problem. They've got a little discord. There's some disunity in the church, and, uh, and, it, and it really revolves around two women, Udiah and Syntyche. They're identified by name in chapter 4. And lots of times that's cast as sort of a mean-spirited move on the part of Paul. And you hear the old fire and brimstone preacher talk about calling names and preaching. I don't think that's the spirit in which Paul speaks at all. I think there's a real concern. There, there's a personal note in the book of Philippians that's unlike this kind of scowling face and angry tone that's chastising individual members of the body. He's imploring them that they would aid die and Syntyche, that they could be on the same page. He recognizes their value to the advancement of the kingdom and seeks to see them pulled back together into the greater work of the church. He calls upon them to put away grumbling and complaining and to pull together in unity for the advancement of the gospel. And chapter 2 evolves in as this transition takes place from gospel par partnership and gospel perspective to this call to unity in one of the best-known passages in the New Testament, one of the sweetest passages in the New Testament, and what most believe is reflective of a hymn that was sung in the early church. Look to verse 1. If then there is any encouragement in Christ... If any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, focusing on one goal. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. That's how we ought to really function as a body, right? You know, I, I don't, I don't, I'm thankful to God in heaven that I'm a member of a church that I think does a fairly good job of pulling together in unity and loves one another, a church that's not plagued by discord and grumbling and complaining. I, I, I celebrate that, and I celebrate that in fear and trembling because it can go away in an instant. And once it goes away, it can be a very, very difficult thing to restore. But I've seen it go the other way and be nasty and ugly. 
I've preached in churches where you could cut the tension with a knife. No one had to tell me there were problems in the church. I could tell it by the scowls on the faces of every person in the pew. And I don't know how you ever get that far off track. But I know this. Everyone who gets that far off track feels perfectly justified in being off track. They feel as though they have a good justification, a good reason for having this bitterness and hostility in their heart toward others. They feel as though they're somehow policing the church and they're pulling for what is right and they're fighting for the good thing and they're opposing the bad thing and they're perfectly justified in the position that they've taken, a position of opposition against those around them. But it's an ugly, sinful thing that is an incredible impediment to the advancement of the gospel. You'll think I'm overstating this, and I'm not trying to be super spiritual here. But as a preacher, when you preach in a congregation where there is unity, there is a freedom of the Spirit and a sensed power in preaching that's difficult to describe. On the other hand, when you preach in a congregation where there is clearly friction or tension, and it can be the beginnings of friction or tension where 95% of the body doesn't know, maybe only those parties immediately involved in the discord know, and there is a binding of the, of the Spirit and a difficulty in preaching that is likewise difficult to describe. I don't think we can overstate the importance, the value of being united in Christ and the power that comes with that to see the kingdom of Jesus expanded. Now, Paul cites an example here of Christian humility that fuels unity in verses 5 and following. And I mentioned a moment ago that, that there's, this seems to be where it begins. He says in verse 5, make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus. And here's the hymn. And it seems to be set this way, and there's a certain cadence and rhythm about the original text that suggests that it's a hymn. Christ, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he'd come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now notice the pattern that's set. Jesus deserved all of the glory and honor and praise that was owed him and that was paid him seated at the right hand of God. His position at God's right hand is not unique to his new covenant work. He was with God in the foundations of the world. It was through Christ the earth was hung on its axis. He has always enjoyed that position of radiant glory at the right hand of God. It is only that he resumes that position with renewed and even new authority after his resurrection. He comes down from heaven in spite of his deserving 
all of the glories, privileges, and benefits that belong in heaven. He deserves that. But he robes himself in flesh and comes to dwell among us. So the the pattern looks like this. If you feel justified for your bitterness, your hostility, your anger and frustration with those around you, you may be in a practical sense justified for your bitterness, anger, and hostility. But what Christ has modeled for us is an unreasonable measure of grace for others. We did not deserve Jesus coming and dwelling in our midst. We did not deserve that. And the people that have offended you, they do not deserve your forgiveness. They do not deserve your compassion. But because of what Jesus has done for us in granting us an unreasonable measure of compassion and forgiveness, we have now been charged and empowered by the gospel to give unreasonable grace and forgiveness, to treat those who don't deserve to be treated well, well, even as Christ has treated us. He assumes the form of a slave. There's less distance between you and your character and the cockroaches that creep your home at night than there is from heaven to where Jesus dwelt among us. And yet he would condescend and walk in our midst for our salvation. Jesus did that. The only one who knew no sin. The only one who was perfect in justness. And he came and walked among us in the likeness of sinful men. And so now we're called upon to do the same in humility to treat others as Christ has treated us. But notice what the outcome is here. We're back to this thing that we talked about again and again and again in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus died on the cross when he didn't have to, when he didn't deserve to, as substitute for our sin. And the heavenly response to this is to attribute to Jesus The name which is above all names. I actually think there's a specific name of God that this has reference to. He's been given the exclusive title of God. In his resurrection power, he has been given authority in heaven and on earth. That at the end of days, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. Through his humility, he is ultimately exalted. And that's the way it works in the kingdom. Through the humility of Christ's followers, we are exalted by God. James says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The language there means God is actively fighting against proud, egotistical people. But he raises up. He's at war on behalf of. He lifts up those who humble themselves before him. I like to say when God gets ready to exalt me, he won't need my assistance in doing it. And the same is true for you. It is unbecoming of us that we would have prideful, egotistical, haughty spirits. We ought to be clothed with humility, confident that when God gets ready to exalt our position, he is well-powered, well-equipped to do just that. That's the pattern. That's the paradigm for the kingdom. Jesus spells this out again and again and again in the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to be first, you got to be what? Last. If you want to be master of all, you got to be what? Servant of all. 
This is just the way it works in the kingdom. The way to get ahead is not elbowing your way to the front, but in a lowly, humble way, taking your place in the back. If you go to a banquet, Jesus says in parabolic form, don't go sit down front in case you might have someone's seat and you have to suffer the embarrassment of being moved to the back. Rather, sit at the back and you never know when out of grace someone might come and, and have you positioned right at the front in a place of great uh, prominence within the gathering. We are, as Christ's followers, to be clothed in humility even as Jesus himself clothed himself in humility for our benefit, for our salvation. Look to verse 12. I really want us to get to the back half of Philippians, and we might before we're done, but there's good stuff here in chapters 1 and 2 as well. Paul says, So then, my dear friends, just as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose, do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world. Now, I, I have almost always seen a, a hard transition between verses 11 and 12. In other words, in preaching and reading this passage, I read of the call to humility and unity in verses 1 through 11, and then I've regarded verses 12 and following as a hard transition dealing with another issue altogether. But there seems to be some unity here. If you take out the verse numbers and the paragraph breaks, which didn't exist in the original text anyway, this comes immediately after this pattern established by Jesus. So that in my estimation, when Paul says work, he's speaking specifically to this issue of humility and unity in the body. Work out your salvation in humility. Work out these friendships, these relationships, your fellowship with other brothers and sisters as an expression of your salvation. Noting in verse 15 that it's God who's working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose. He follows that with, this is what the part of this that's convincing to me that this is all part of the same conversation. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. If I'm reading Paul correctly, if I'm understanding the flow of Paul's rhetoric here, he seems to be saying there's probably some people that you just don't think you can get along with. There are probably some people who are really, really hard to share fellowship. There are probably some people that just flat get on your nerves. Y'all are probably more spiritual than me, and y'all don't have those people in your life. There are probably some people who've done some things to you that you really struggle to get over. But work out your salvation in fear and trembling. And remember that it's God who is at work in you, enabling and empowering unity and, and, and the putting away of discord. It's God who's enabling you this spirit of optimism and, and, and enthusiasm and excitement about gospel advancement that allows you to do all things without grumbling or complaining. Let's say again, do all things without grumbling or complaining. We used to have this featured in our home as a verse for our children, and, and, and I can't say that we ever mastered do all things without grumbling and complaining but it's certainly one that's often cited within the context of, of my house. And some of you would benefit from the frequent citation of, the very, of this very verse in your homes as well. 
So Paul is saying, you can have Christ-like humility, and you can have unity in the gospel by working out your salvation, remembering that it's God who's at work in you, enabling and working out this capacity for gospel oneness. I don't think I'm far off of the purpose and intent of what the Apostle Paul was driving at here in this passage. We don't have a whole, whole lot of time left, and, and so I, I want us to look just quickly into chapter 4. Chapter 3 is that severe section of Philippians that you may want to go back and spend some time with. Paul says some very harsh things. He's dealing with those legalists, the Judaizers. He calls them dogs here, the circumcision party. And he wishes for the mutilation of their flesh beyond circumcision, which is not exactly a happy thought. But he, I mean, he just has the strongest condemnation for that group of people. And, and then he, he sets his resume next to theirs. I'm, I'm a Jew by birth, circumcised on the eighth day. He's pointing out there it's not ritual that, that makes you right with God. And, and he says, I'm an Israelite. In fact, I'm of the tribe of, of Benjamin. It's not my race as an ethnic Jew that makes me right with God. It's, it's not my rank as the member of, of the tribe of Benjamin, a noteworthy and highly respected tribe within the nation of Israel. It's, 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 it's not the fact that I was a Pharisee. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I had it all figured out. I was so zealous I was persecuting the church. It's not my religion that makes me right with God. It's the abiding presence of Jesus in me. Maybe, maybe even more importantly, it's my abiding presence in Christ. That's the position that we take by faith and repentance. In Christ, we take our refuge in Christ. And in Christ, we are safe. We are well kept in him that's such a critical concept in paul's writing and think of this in terms of of the ark noah and the ark those eight members of noah's family took their refuge in the ark and they were there safe from the rains 40 days and 40 nights they were safe from disaster and judgment they were safe from the flood now by faith and repentance we take our refuge in christ and we are safe within his body, even as he abides in us. Chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul turns again to this issue of unity. We've made reference to this passage already. He says, So then, my brothers, you are dearly loved and longed for my joy and crown. In this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge you die, and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who've contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. When there's discord in the body, not only is it the responsibility of those immediately involved in the disagreement to reconcile, it becomes the responsibility of those around them to assist, to aid in their reconciliation as well. Now, it takes a great deal of wisdom to do that. And ministry in the, in the South, especially in Mississippi, can be complicated when it comes to this because most, most of those disputes happen within the context of family. I've jokingly said one of the most valuable ministry lessons I ever learned, I learned from the TV show Cops. He always said domestic situations are the most dangerous. Be careful about how you involve yourself. There's some wisdom required here, right? 
the direction and leadership of the Spirit to know how to best do that. But we can begin on our knees praying that God would grant reconciliation and repentance as it's necessary, the restoration of those relationships. Paul sees both of these women as having value to the kingdom. And to lose their kingdom value would be a detriment to the overall advancement of the gospel. I've been counseling with a couple of different churches and pastors going through church splits and disputes and disagreements. And my constant counsel is there are people on both sides who have real value to the kingdom. And losing them as an asset within the body would be a detriment to the advancement of the gospel. And so you decide whether your outlook on things, your, whether, you decide whether you being right is more important than the advancement of the gospel or, or whether you'd rather be wrong and see the kingdom be able to move forward. You determine which of those is going to be the most important to you. Is it more important to you being right or is it more important that the gospel of Jesus Christ be advanced? I'm not talking about non-negotiable issues. I'm not talking about the difference between heaven and hell. I'm not talking about that. But, but that's what it ultimately comes down to at times. Whether we will humble ourselves, seek reconciliation and restoration in that relationship, or, or in our pride, in our egotism, persevere insisting that we've been right all along and will continue to be right for days and weeks and months and even years to come. It's interesting to me that this name Clement is cited here and the rest of my co-workers. There is an extra biblical work um, that, that bears the name of Clement. It's debatable as to whether or not it actually belongs to him, but the name Clement is cited in the early church fathers. He's known to have been one who contributed to the advancement of the kingdom in some pretty powerful ways, and I think it's likely safe that we could assume that you die and Syntyche do as well. There is real restoration that happens on the, on the other end of this experience, and the church participates in the building up of that kind of restoration and reconciliation. Here's one last positive note from the book of Philippians. Chapter 4, verse number 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there's any, any praise, dwell on these things. I, I, I get so much mileage out of that verse and, and I, you know, like most things biblical, there's always some worldly effort at ripping it off and, uh, and misapplying or misrepresenting it. You know, I hear so much talk, foolish talk now about good vibes and positive energy and being super positive and all those sorts of things, which is just dumb. But there is value, there is value in meditating on the good and praiseworthy things. Like you, you sit and you think of reasons to be upset, to be discouraged, to despair, and it won't take you long to find some really good reasons, and before long you'll find yourself meditating there much longer than you ever needed to. And it gets into your bones. It shapes your outlook. It changes the way you talk. It can turn the course of a conversation. But if you'll meditate on those good and praiseworthy things, those things that are lovely and right and righteous, those things of God, his character, his grace, his goodness, the countless ways he's at work in your life. Doesn't it turn your heart? Doesn't it make you just want to worship and rejoice in his goodness toward you? 
Part of what it means, Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, we bring every thought captive to obedience to Christ. One of the great weapons of our warfare in the things of Satan at work in our mind is the ability to dwell, to meditate on the good and praiseworthy things. Dwell there and you'll find yourself with a joyful, rejoicing countenance. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth. Thank you for the encouragement, the nourishment of soul that we find here in these four chapters. Help us to hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against you. God, I pray that you would make us shine as stars in a crooked and perverse generation. God, holding fast to the message of the gospel, dwelling, meditating on the good and praiseworthy things with a, with a, a glowing countenance and a positive outlook that come what may, no matter what the outcomes might look like for us, heads we win, tails we win. Give us the kind of firm resolve to say in Christ, to live is Jesus, and to die is gain. We ask it in his name. Amen.